I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore S-E-C. Joining me this episode, as he does every week, is Will Miles, and you can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site, ReadAndReaction.com. Will, it's a couple of days later, and uh, you still can't wipe the smile off of uh, many Gators fans' faces out there after beating Florida State a couple of days ago. It still feels oh so good. Oh, man, you can't wipe the, fa- the smile off anybody's face after, after that game. So, I mean, hey, complete domination of your biggest rival in state, at least. And, uh, you know, Mullen finishing off the season going three and one against the main rivals. If you, if you consider the rivals, Tennessee, LSU, Georgia, and Florida State, that's that's the way you want to end the season. It's it's great for the seniors who hadn't beaten Florida State yet. Great for some of these guys, some of the guys who are going to leave early, who I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, you know, it's just a fantastic way to end the season, really building momentum in the next year. And it, it's exciting to see where this program's going to go. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, it was well, it was it was a blast seeing those players uh, have some fun uh, to end the season on a change. You know, for, didn't even have a bowl game last year when they would uh, have a somewhat okay season. They'd get to that Florida State game and, uh, you know, of course, five straight losses in a row or go to Atlanta and then get beat by Alabama. And uh, you just couldn't end the season on a a high note this time. You know, it was good seeing – I mean, literally, as soon as the clock got red zero, I saw Chauncey Gardner run to the uh, end zone and grab the flag, uh, the, the Gator, the Gator, the Gator head logo flag, and uh, we all know what happened there about uh, not being able to, to plant it near midfield uh, there. But uh, you could you, you could tell certain things like uh, being able to, to celebrate that win was on the players' minds. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, obviously, it's a long time coming for those guys. And- and congratulations to them. I mean, they've worked awfully hard for that moment. And, you know, I, I'm a little bit disappointed that the tagger took that moment away from him, having him plant, plant the flag in the middle of the field. But uh, it gave us the opportunity to have some memes about how that was the best defense he played all day or that Florida State played all day and sort of erasing their bowl streak and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, you were down there during, during, the, uh, during the melee afterwards taking pictures and video, and I'm sure it was a great time for everybody who was in Tallahassee. But, you know, even for those of us who don't live in, in Gainesville or in Florida, you know, 364 days of bragging is, is a really, really sweet thing. 
All right, we'll get Will's thoughts on uh, what transpired during the game, and uh, we'll look at the players who can leave early for the NFL draft and what they'll decide to do. Of course, some news with Chauncey Gardner-Johnson already declaring, so, and uh, well, we'll get into some more players who have that decision upcoming uh, pretty soon. But before we do that, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on newsforjacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes as well as articles from the News for Jack sports team. Catch us on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and Spotify. And when using their services, please share, rate, and review the show and on social media. Follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. 41-14, Will. 27-port margin as well. You know, I mentioned it yesterday. It's the third largest win uh, over the Seminoles in dominating fashion. Over 500 yards of offense. You leave Dope Campbell Stadium, 536 yards of offense. FSU in this game, we, we went through all those stats uh, last week, but, you know, FSU averaged giving up only – well, not only, but giving up 405 yards. Florida, you know, well over that by about 130 yards. And then uh, the Gators have 536 while FSU was only giving up 405. You know, it was a little clunky at first, uh, only 13-6 to six at halftime as well. But you could see there were some things there, and it all it, and it was just an avalanche in the second half. Yeah, it was pretty early that you saw that Florida State was not going to be able to handle Florida's defensive line. And so you knew that if they were going to put up maybe 20 points, I think at halftime, that was what you, me, and Bill were sort of texting about, is that if, if they could get to 20, the game was probably over. And obviously they didn't have the first drive coming out there in the second half and, and you know looked really, really good on that opening drive coming down the field, um, which hasn't always been the case in the third quarter for, for this Gator team. So to come out to have made the adjustments, to clearly make the adjustment from, you know, from relying on Frank solely in the passing game, do they eventually just said, you know what, Florida State's got seven guys in the box. We're going to run against it anyway. And, you know, they were able to do so. And, and really from the first or from the second quarter on, they did that. So they, they had 11 called runs and nine called passes in the in the first quarter so um i guess backwards they had nine runs and 11 passes um but two of those passes turned into runs because frank scrambled and from then on it was 12 runs and six passes 17 runs and six passes and 12 runs and six passes in the second third and fourth quarter so mullen clearly went to the run even though the numbers didn't necessarily dictate it and the offensive line won and they won on the long p-run run they run. They they won consistently. I mean, it was like four and five yard chunks every time they ran the ball. I don't recall them. Maybe once I recall them getting to like a third and three where they ran the ball and they couldn't get a first down. Very rarely were they even in third downs once they decided to run the ball. It was you know two runs and they were there and and uh, you know it really set up the pass, set up the pass, allowed Franks to excel there in the second half. Absolutely, and you mentioned uh, Felipe Franks. And Pro Football Focus had a couple stats out there about Felipe Franks and his performance and what a performance it was. Um, The first one they threw out here, the highest passer rating was kept clean for Week 13. Felipe Franks was the number one quarterback in the nation with a rating of 158.3, according to Pro Football Focus there. So, you know, good for Felipe Franks and and getting the protection he needed from that offensive line, get some play calling as well as, you know, the FSU's defense was lost at times with with what uh, the Gators were throwing out there. And also another stat, Will, and you really mentioned it going into this game. If you went back and look at what Florida was did um, in the Idaho game and what FSU had trouble with, 
uh, defending this season was the middle of the field and uh, pro football focus out there uh, as well. So they had a little kind of a chart that they had with Felipe Franks and passing to the middle of the field. Franks was three or four for 99 yards and two touchdowns with a passer rating of 156.3 uh, there uh, passing in the middle of the field. So uh, that was for 20 yards. That was uh, you know, 20 plus yards there. So within the 10 to 19 yard range, three of three for 88 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions, a passer rating of 118.8 and zero to nine yards, two of two for 24 yards uh, and a passer rating of 116.7. So one more time, 20 plus yards, three of four for 99 yards, two touchdowns, 10 of 19 yardage. Uh, He was three of three for 88 yards and for zero to nine yards, two of two. For 24 yards. So over the middle, Will, only one completion on the day, or one incompletion on the day. Yeah, well, so, you know, this, this is what I've got because the, uh, I, from those who are listening, I've got the the pink backpack here on the podcast because Florida didn't turn the ball over, you know, and, and that, that was really the only way they were going to lose this game based on once you saw that Florida was dominating up front, the only way they were going to lose it is if they turned the ball over. Um, obviously, Van Jefferson just sort of left, left the safety in his wake on that one pass. But then, you know, I, I diagrammed in the article I had that came out after the game sort of, um, you know, a multi, the first drive of the second half where they had a bunch of different runs all out of the same formation. And then they had the fake run from the quarterback and it just was wide open to Van Jefferson. And when you looked at the touchdown to start the fourth quarter, it was the same thing where Franks took one little jab step up. So it was essentially play action. The linebackers came up. It was one-on-one on the outside, and, and Jefferson made the safety look foolish. So, um, you know, it's, it's easy to hit guys when they're open by 20 yards. <laughs> it's a whole lot easier that way. But even the ball that he threw to, uh, to Cleveland, where Cleveland got hurt, um, you know, that ball was right on target, hit him in the hands. Uh, you know, he wasn't able – I mean, it was a tough catch, and that isn't something that I think you'll necessarily always expect somebody to come up with. But at the same time, um, you know, right on his hands and could have been a big play too. So um, he was a little bit hesitant in the first half. You could see him sort of holding on to the ball, not necessarily being as decisive as you'd like, um, especially the first throw on that first third down where it could have, if he had been accurate at all, it probably would have been a pick six going the other direction. <laughs> yeah. um, but the second half, I mean, you know, he was, he was eight of 11, 121 yards. Um, but he also added five rushes and 21 yards in the, in the second half as well. Um, so not only was he running the, or not only was he passing the ball effectively, he was running the ball effectively, averaging 4.2 yards. And when you combine that with what P Ryan and, uh, and Scarlett were able to do, it was just way too much for Florida State. Absolutely. Absolutely. Will. And, uh, just, you know, of course this was given the circumstances, the opponent needing to win, uh, Frank's, you know, still kind of being questioned, uh, as after the Missouri game, uh, had the great comeback with South Carolina, did what he was supposed to do versus Idaho. You know, this was the game that a lot of fans were going to remember, you know, the 2018 Felipe Franks for. And if you want to you know, kind of go back to 2017 and look at his numbers and the transformation that he took under Dan Mullen, you know, 2017, uh, 125 for 229 uh, or 125 for uh, 125 completions out of 229 attempts. That was 54.6%. For only uh, 1,438 yards, nine touchdowns, eight interceptions. So 125 for 229. I mean, fast forward 2018 and uh, 175 out of 299 for 58.5%, 2,284 yards, 
23 touchdowns, six interceptions, add six rushing touchdowns to that as well. Well, and that's not even counting, you know, the, the what he could add with his legs in the in the run game too. Uh, that helped there as well. Uh, you know, when it's all said and done, if you want to compare Felipe Franks, look, we we know is is it perfect by any means? No, it's never going to be perfect. Is it kind of the quarterback that we're looking for ultimately that Dan Mullen's going to have? Not really. But this is the quarterback that Dan Mullen has transformed from 2017 to 2018 and a quarterback that he led or that led this team to go 9-3. and three. Yeah, so I mean, other than cupcake games against Charleston Southern and Idaho, this was by far his best statistical game. Um, you know, so my yards above replacement metric, I had him at 1.86. For the season overall, that takes him to 0.13. So he's slightly above average for the entire year. And I think you see that when you look at the inconsistency that we saw throughout the year. So, you know, sort of the lull against Georgia and Missouri in the first half against Vanderbilt, sort of the inconsistency against Mississippi State, um, certainly against Kentucky, threw the ball an awful lot, had 232 yards, but only averaged six yards per throw. Um, so though that inconsistency is the stuff that he's really going to have to work on in the offseason. But, I mean, I mentioned this in the article, and, and I definitely think it's true that if, if, if this is his ceiling, his ceiling is a really good quarterback. Now, again, though, it only matters if you can do it consistently. And as much as a win against Florida State matters, and it does matter, and it matters in the large scheme of things, and this is a bigger win than beating another team that would be 5-6, and six, it, it's still a 5-6 and six team that you went out and beat. And so I'm not ready to say they're ready to compete with Georgia tomorrow. I think that they would give Georgia a better game today than they would have three or four weeks ago, most likely. But, you know, there's still some work to do to get to that level. But a lot of that has to do with the consistency of the quarterback day after day after day. Um, you know, he played really, really well. I think he played better than most of us thought he would coming into the year. And congratulations to him, because for all of the for all the crap he's taken for, for his play last year and for some of the lulls that we saw this year, to be able to come back out and play as well as he did in the second half against South Carolina and as well as he did really the entire game against Florida State, you got to give him an awful lot of credit because it would have been easy to fold, especially after the Missouri game when, when it looked like he was going to be replaced. But he clearly worked pretty hard during that Missouri week, um, even though Trask might have come in without an injury and was able to turn that into a win. So um, kudos to Franks. Had a very good year. I think he played better than most of us would have expected coming into the year. I would expect him to be slightly below average in the yards above replacement metric and he turned out to be above average so um you know coming into the year if you had told me frank was going to be right out above average for the entire season i would have definitely taken it same as if you told me before the season that they were going to be nine and three i think most of us would have taken that as well yeah and one stat will we may would have foretold and i still don't even know if we would have got this far with it but you know, I threw the stat out there yesterday as well. You know, this was the eighth time this year that Florida has run for 200-plus yards. Coming into the season, look, we thought this would be a run-heavy team. They kind of relied on Franks a little bit more than, than I thought they would uh, coming into the season. But still, even with, even with passing the ball a little bit more than what I thought they would, still eight times this season they ran for 200-plus yards. And uh, what a 74-yard run by Michael Piran. It's a, It has been quite some time. Uh, you know, since 2012 that we have seen a run for uh, uh, that magnitude, uh, but especially from a Florida running back. Uh, you go back to 2012, Jeff Driscoll had a 70-yard run, and Trey Burton had a 80-yard uh, run against Tennessee, but it's been 
uh, a while since we saw a running back take uh, a, a run like that to the house, uh, you know, near, and this was a 74 yard run. So, you know, good, uh, good for P Ryan to be able to show that home run ability against Florida State. Yeah, well, P Ryan's been great all year. I think really he and Scarlett have both shown some explosion that they haven't shown in years prior. On the particular play you're talking about, though, P Ryan didn't get touched. And he, and he didn't get touched because the offensive line did an unbelievable job. Seante Lewis did a great job sealing the edge. Uh, Martez Ivy absolutely flipped and pancaked the linebacker that he was on. Um, Nick Buchanan got, had a combo block with the guard where he was able to get out to a linebacker as well and seal him off. And really, Ivy's block was so forceful, I think it forced safety into the wrong gap. <laughs> and that's what really opened it up for, uh, for P. Ryan to bust it out wide. And, and they ran to the right side of the field, because, or to the left side of the field, which was the correct side of the field, because all the defensive backs were over on the right-hand side sort of expecting a screen out of that formation. So, um, you know, everything sort of hit aces on that particular play. But that's a play Florida could not have executed last year. And I'm not sure that's a play Florida could have executed four weeks ago. I mean, to have everybody on the offensive line just dominate against a seven-man front and open it up, and really an eight-man front when you factor in the safety, and open it up and just have the running back keep running, I mean, that's something we saw against teams like Idaho and teams like Vanderbilt. But to see it against a team like Florida State, who, um, irrespective of what you think of the of the preparedness for Florida State, they have athletes out there, and the athletes got dominated on the field. And, and uh, you at, know, t- they, at, t- at times, with only 10 on the field. <laughs> well, McElroy was fed up with it by the time the fourth quarter came around. He, he, he was giving Taggart the business pretty good, which was uh, entertaining to say the least. You know, you look at Peter Adam, he finishes with 750 yards in the uh, for the season. Scarlett just behind him at 717. They both average 5.9 yards per carry. Um, you know, I, I think that's a reflection of how Mullen runs his offense, but I think it's really a reflection on Hevesy and the impact he had on the offensive line. I mean, this offensive line against Michigan last year was just atrocious. And you have almost the same guys out there. Um, or at least a lot of the same guys who, who were making those mistakes against Michigan, and it's just night and day. Now, again, I think we'll see in the bowl game when they play somebody uh, when they play somebody better or as talented as they are, unless maybe they play UCF. But if they play somebody as talented as they are in the bowl game, we'll see whether the uh, whether the progression has really gotten to a point where you know we can look at that and say, hey, ten and two pencil it in every year because this team is developing and uh, you know and it's going to improve, but. Uh, very, very impressed with the offensive line. Um, very, very impressed with the running backs. I think P. Ryan especially really gets that extra yard or two at the end of the run, and that makes a difference when the offensive line gives you the ability to sort of – when you're not getting hit till you're three yards downfield, that means you're second and five every time. Yeah, well, you could tell right after halftime, you know, they made it a point to run uh, with Jordan Scarlett. He had a great second half. Uh, that was a player that wasn't on this team last year. And two other guys who – Maybe we expected more to come in coming in this year as transfers that weren't on the team last year either. But Van Jefferson and Trayvon Gimes both have you know, their best games of the season as well. You know, it, great to see. Um, you know, maybe we expected more that, out of these guys during the season. But when you're playing your arch rival, 
uh, the, the two guys that you brought in who thought would make an impact, Grimes and Jefferson, really uh, play, play their best games of the year as well. And you know, kudos to, to Franks for getting them the ball, but also kudos to the to, to play call in there who, who got those guys open, uh, and especially the one uh, with, with Grimes and when uh, Franks rolled out to his right, kind of a busted play there. Uh, Franks directing the traffic uh, where, where Grimes to go, and Franks, I really tell you what, just throws the laser there, and uh, Grimes goes up and gets it. Uh, you know, the good good. Uh, for the final game of the season, good to see the, those two guys that we thought we'd see more out of make a big impact in the at the last game of the season. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that Franks is starting to develop some trust with his receivers and really sort of a rapport in terms of knowing where they're going to be. He's got some things that he's comfortable doing. He's got some things that he's not comfortable doing, which was one of the reasons I thought it was important that Mullen had them repping those throws over the middle during the Idaho game. You know, a lot of times a coach will sort of, you know, won't want to show his cards before before he goes out there, those RPOs over the middle, Mullen showed it three, four, five times against Idaho, and then they showed up in this game. So um, the, the play you're talking about in particular isn't, isn't that kind of play, but it is one of those, you know, you throw that ball if you trust the wide receiver to, get, to go up and get it. And even though the defender was way off, you know, it's possible that, that if the defender closes, that, that can be a dangerous throw. And, and Franks trusted himself, and he trusted Grimes to make the play. So, um yeah, I think they're building a rapport. I think this is one of the things that you that we that we probably expected coming into the year was that the team would be much much better by the time you got to week thirteen than they would in week one, and that, and that's really what we saw. I think the other thing is they've started to identify guys beyond Kadarius Tony who can be playmakers on a regular basis. So you know that second half, the explosive plays they had, they had four of them in the second half, or I guess they had three in the second half, but but one of them in the first half, fifty-four yard pass to Grimes. 22-yard pass to Grimes, 38-yard pass to Jefferson, and a 20-yard pass to Grimes. So all the explosive plays go into those guys and uh, and certainly contributing to Florida's success in this game, at least. Absolutely there. And, well, we'll move to the other side of the ball. And uh, I talked yesterday about, you know, this aggressive defensive front and Florida, holding you know, Florida State 1-14 of 14 on third downs. But one more time, we wondered when we were going to see that pass rush again from the likes of Polite and Zuniga. And you know, this was the game many pegged because of the issues we had seen with this FSU offensive line all season long. This FSU offensive line was playing better coming into this game, uh, but it was a chance for this Florida defensive line to feast, and boy, did they. Oh, man. Well, I mean, you can see it really early up front, both against the run and against the pass. Florida State just did not have an answer for anybody on the line. There were, there were times where they had – Zuniga and Polite lined up inside and they beat the guards. There were times they had them lined up outside and they beat the tackles. Um, Francois had no time to throw. When he did have time to throw, um, you know, he was feeling footsteps and sort of moving. The only success Florida State really had was when he was able to run the ball a couple of times or when they just chucked it deep to Terry. And, you know, that was really sort of their offense. I mean, if you look at the explosive plays, they had a 25-yard pass to Murray. They had a 36-yard pass to Terry. They had a 32-yard run for Francois and a 31-yard pass to Terry. If you take out those four plays, they averaged 2.8 yards per play. So, I mean, just really not moving the ball at all. And a lot of those yards, I mentioned it in the article, the wrap-up article, that a lot of those yards came after the game was in. You know, it was 27-7. And, they, yeah, Florida let them drive down the field and make it 27-14. But, you know, that was the vast majority of the yards they gave up in the second half was that one drive. And then obviously came down and shut the door with two more touchdowns at that point. So you'd made a joke last week about how if it was, 
or how if it was 45 nothing or 45-7 with Nolan Keith's foot on the gas. You, you said you wanted 52, so they, they, they almost gave it to you there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So FSU, 293 yards of offense uh, in this game, and Florida held, their, held it below. Their season average was 367 uh, coming into the game. So averaging 367, Florida held them to 293, and then uh, rushing the ball, uh, 35 attempts for 158 yards for FSU. Um, and, uh, well, uh, never mind. I think I messed that stat up there. So sorry. <laughs> I, was trying, I was trying to see where I was going with that. Uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that one, but yeah, the, but still holding, um, uh, they're well below their, their season average there, uh, for, for total offense. Uh, I think my notes got mixed up there, so I don't know where I was going. I think, uh, they helped Francois below his season average as well. Uh, when it was when it was all said and done, I know I know that's what the stat was. So I think it was 280 yards uh, on the season, and uh, they held them to uh, 154 uh, for Francois. I think that was the stat there, if I can remember. If I can remember right, Will. So I mean, the average FSU had coming in. Hey, look, it wasn't great to begin with, and Florida held them even even further below that. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think it was setting the tone. So in the first in the first quarter, Florida averaged 5.1 yards per play. Florida State averaged 2.1. So just absolute domination by the Florida defense. A ton of three and outs. Just a ton of three and outs. And then in the second quarter, Florida averaged nine yards of play. And even though Florida State up there, their yards to play up to four and a half, that basically came on the one touchdown drive. But, you know, again, Florida just left them in the dust. It was clear Florida was the better team. The nervousness that you had at halftime was just, you know, one turnover, one stupid penalty, one thing that would sort of um, that might turn the momentum and turn the tide could still cost you the game at that point. But, you know, again, when they came down and drove right down the field in that third quarter, obviously aided by that Florida State penalty in the end zone. But when they came down and drove down the field and made it 20 to 20 to seven, it was basically over at that point. Again, you mentioned Francois. They held him to uh, yards above replacement of negative one point three four. And he was really bad in the first half when Florida was able to take the lead. Um, you know, just a ton of three and outs. They had 15 drives total in the game. They had five three and outs in the first half. And then they had four um, plus the end of the game in the second half. They only had four drives longer than four plays. in the So, so 11 drives were four plays or less for Florida State in this game. And, you know, they had the touchdown call back on the illegal motion, obviously. Um, that was a really weird play by Grantham where he had the defensive tackle out guarding Cam Akers. They probably ought to avoid that in the bowl game. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, you can make excuses on the other side too. I mean, there was the third down face mask on Franks that forced mm. the field goal rather than the first down. The officials missed the face mask in the uh, in the second half or in the first half when Florida went up. Thir- or, yeah, when Florida went up, I think thirteen to seven. Um, so you know, th- those things tend to even themselves even themselves out. Um, and, and Florida State wasn't prepared to play. I mean, the, out of all the things that I think are disturbing for Florida State fans, it was, you know, you made the joke about the 10 men on the field and Chauncey Gardner like telling the guy to get out there, according to what Matt Hayes was saying on, on Twitter. But, you know, the stupid penalties, the unsportsmanlike penalties, the, the false starts, the illegal shifts, the, the letting the play clock run down, the offensive line not getting off the ball, even though it's a home game. Like, all of those things. I mean, Florida State, the 24-7 rankings, when you look at the records last year and who came back, all those sorts of things, based on everything we've seen thus far, Florida State should be the more talented team. 
they didn't look like it, and they also didn't look like a well-coached team. And I got to be honest, like people might say Taggart has, you know, all he needs to do is get a couple of recruiting classes in, but how much better are they really going to get? I mean, he, he's got four stacked up that were really, really good. And I, 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 if I were a Florida State fan, I'd be really, really nervous right now. And as a Florida fan, I'd be elated, both because Florida State's struggling so much, but also because of what Mullen's been able to do with essentially the same roster as last year. And last year they lost to Florida State by what? By like 16 points. And this year they win by 27. So you're talking about a 43-point turnaround in, in, the, in the span of a year. Um, and a lot of that is owed to Frank's play being much, much better in this game. Um, a lot of that is owed to the defense being a lot better this year than it was last year. And then some of it's due to injuries. So, you know, we go back to Savage and the offseason and the strength and conditioning program. It seemed like we might still have a hex on us when when uh, Lenton went down and then Marco Wilson went down early and all those sorts of things. But, you know, they were able to piece together the defensive back stayed healthy for the, basically the rest of the year. After uh, after the back injury to C.J. Henderson in the Georgia game, that's the only time I can really remember one of the defensive backs going out. And, you know, that that traces back to that strength and conditioning program. So I'm excited to see what Florida's going to be able to do this offseason. Um, obviously, we still have a bowl game coming up. But with another year under the strength and conditioning, another year in the Mullen system, I, I think it's going to be, you know, things are definitely looking up for Florida. Obviously, there are always things you want to do better. There are things you want to improve on. But, man, what a stark contrast coaches who were both hired last year and where they were when Jimbo Fisher left in this game last year and where we are a year later. You mentioned a, a year later and it's been a, a year to the day that Dan Mullen was hired uh, to be Florida's head coach and you know Will you brought it up the comparison to Taggart here and Knowles 24-7 had a breakdown of the ineptitude of Florida State this year. We know about the streaks that ended for Florida State but also the first time since the 2009 season that FSU has lost to all three of their primary rivals, Clemson, Florida, and Miami, in the same season. Uh, FSU had not given up 40 or more points to Florida since 2008, when uh, Tim Tebow was the quarterback, of course. And then also look at some stats here. Yards per carry. Florida State averaged 2.79 yards per carry this season. It is the worst average among all Power 5 teams. The the Seminoles had had a low... Um, yard per carry average in other years, but have only once averaged less than three yards per carry prior to this season uh, based on their research. And that came in 1969 when FSU averaged 2.5 yards per carry. Florida State allowed 8.58 tackles for loss per game this season. That's the second most of any Power 5 team this year. And go to the other side of the ball, if we talk, Everybody was talking up that defense a little bit, too, uh, as being kind of the strength of the team. Will Florida State surrender 31.5 points per game? That is believed to be the highest average in the history of the program. Uh, previous high came in 1973 when Florida State allowed 30.1 points per game. Uh, Seminoles entered uh, the past week with the worst average starting field position uh, allowed in the country. Uh, but uh, FSU was also prone to giving up chunk plays through the air 49 passes of 20-plus yards allowed, that's 117th nationally, and gave up 30 passing touchdowns, second worst among all Power 5 teams. And the last time FSU lost seven games, 1975. So, Will, all this, and Dan Mullen comes into a 4-7 and team like you mentioned, had the offense have been ranked in the hundreds for years and years on offense, and now the offense is in the top 50 at 48th, with the 26th ranked rushing attack in the country, while Taggart produced the worst yards per carry in the country, 
You heard me just mention all those other stats right there that have been, you know, either it's been a long time since FSU has been that bad or they're one of the worst teams in the nation in certain uh, statistical categories right now. So ultimately, nine and three for Mullen, five and seven for Willie Taggart. And honestly, Will, you wrote an article when both guys were hired. This ain't even close right now. And you go back and look at those stats. It is Willie Taggart. That team is not that bad. And in year one and him, they somehow got worse than what they were last year. They weren't that great of a team last year, but they somehow got worse. And I don't see the outlook being any positive right now. And the gap between Mullen and Taggart is gigantic right now in year one. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's not even, it's not even close. I, I actually, it was funny before the fourth down where Florida went for it and, uh, and didn't get it on the Franks quarterback keeper. You know, I tweeted really quickly before this play even happens. I love going for it here. One, yeah. because mathematically you should go for it. But two, freaking bury him. They're your rival. Like, just bury him. Like, it's time. Be aggressive. Go after it. And, you know, McElwain did that a couple of years ago, and, and, I, and they didn't convert it when Appleby was the quarterback. And then he got much more conservative basically from that game on. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, Mullen missed it, but was aggressive throughout the game. And, and I really appreciated that. Um, and like you mentioned, I wrote an article last year for SEC Country right before I started reading Reaction. I reposted on reading Reaction because SEC Country took it down. But it looked at Taggart's previous stops, um, the, the really the three stops he had before. And considering that he's an offensive guy, the offense at each of those three stops didn't improve in year one. Now, it improved significantly in years two, three, and four. But, but the improvement was they were really bad when he got there. And then he had to improve them. Now, Florida State was reasonably bad last year. I think they were in the 80s when you talk about yards per play. Now they're in like the 110s, 115th, somewhere in that range. It's just, ugh. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm glad they're there because we've had to go through that for the last decade. And it'll be nice to see the Seminoles go through that. At the same time, it does make me, it, it does make me pump the brakes a little bit on the enthusiasm for Florida. Just because you know you beat your rival, it's important to beat your rival. This is a big deal because you haven't beaten them in a while. At the same time, they're not a fantastic team. But when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to building a team, when it comes to convincing people that you're the flagship university, winning this game is important. And you know, at the beginning of the year, I picked Florida to go seven and five. The reason I did that is because I didn't think they'd be able to see an improvement in both the offense and the defense. So the offense from a points per game against FBS opponents went from 104th to 51st. And if you look back on teams that have done that historically, like that's like, that's like top 30% of new coaches to take over to have that happen. Like, so typically teams do not go from 150th. Typically they go from like 100th to 80th and then 80th to 50th. So really Mullen sort of made a two year jump in on offense in, in one year. And then if you look at the defense, they went from 61st in points per game to 35th in points per game against FBS opponents. So not only did the offense improve, but the defense improved as well. And the combination of those two things meant that meant that Florida was 12.1 points per game better in 2018 than they were in 2017. When you improve by 12 points, um, it's a significant deal. I mean, maybe the only team this year that improved by more than 12 points might be Alabama. Um, but that's just because two is slinging it all over the yard. Um you know, anywhere else, I mean, 12 points per game is an enormous difference. And that's really why Florida's 9-3 and three at this point, along with when you when you string together that Mullen was 3-0 and in close games. And 
you know, that tends to even itself out over time. But aggression also tends to be something that gets rewarded in close games and is and, and can be indicative of a coach who's taking advantage of the edges when he's when he's in there. And McElwain, when he was at Florida, his first two years was very aggressive and was very successful in close games. He became much more conservative in, in his third year and I think paid for it. But you, know, you, you think Mississippi State was a one-score game. Well, that was the game where they had the, the trick play to Tony. Um, LSU was a one-score game, and that was the play where they had the, the trick play to crawl. And then you look at South Carolina was a one-score game, and that was sort of you know much more dominating when you looked at it in the second half when when South Carolina couldn't stop them. So there's no game where I look at it in there and say you know it definitively should have gone the other way. I mean, sure, if the if the wide receiver at Mississippi State catches it, maybe it goes the other way. If Burrow doesn't throw the pick six, maybe LSU comes out of that successful. Um, if Muschamp doesn't go into a shell, maybe South Carolina wins that game. But I mean, the point is, is that those things happen. And in most cases, they happen because of moves Mullen made, not necessarily something that they fell into. So, um, you know, again, I look at it, the offense improved, the defense improved. They were 3-0 in one score games. They beat the teams they were supposed to beat. I mean, the three teams that they lost to, um, you know, Kentucky and then, and then Georgia and Missouri, all are above 500 teams, all are pretty good teams. Um, you know, I think the Missouri game is probably the one that's the most disappointing when you really sort of think about quality of the team that they lost to. But Missouri ranks really high in a few rankings. Like ESPN FBI, I think, has them like top 15. Um, you know, and then obviously Kentucky's a top 25 team and Georgia's a very good team. So I, I think they kind of lost teams that were equivalent in performance to them and then were able to beat a couple of teams that were either equivalent or better in talent when you thought about LSU and Mississippi State. And, you know. That's why Mullen was able to pull out a nine and three record in his first year. Well, first and foremost, it, it was a fun season. Uh, it's been a while we could say that being Florida Gator fans, and we mentioned the Will Muschamp years and the Jim McElwain years. Yeah, there were some you know fun seasons there uh, as well. But when you go back and look at it, it's kind of smoke and mirrors uh, at, at times there, especially under Jim McElwain living off those Will Muschamp defenses there, and then going on and getting blown out by Florida State and, and Alabama in back-to-back weeks uh, twice. And uh, you know, this, this season was just a, a whole lot of fun. Part of it was because it was mostly unexpected, uh, Dan Mullen coming in and being able to take uh, a lot of the same players that uh, were on this team last year and being able to turn around uh, and, and make it a 9-3 season. And, Will, you just went through the losses there. It's kind of crazy. You say, if, you, if we would have said in August – all right, Gator fans, you're nine and three. Okay, most of us, the ninety percent of the fan base is probably signing up for that. And okay, we'll we'll, we'll take our chances there. And the, but they wouldn't have believed you if you said, "Hey, Florida, you're going to lose to Kentucky, you're going to lose to Missouri, and you're going to be nine and three. <laughs> so it, it, it's <laughs> funny. Seven five. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny how it works out sometimes. As much as we can uh, preview the seasons and look into everything, you know, sometimes you just don't know how things are going to turn out. And I mean, it, it's absolutely right. I, I was asked that question, and that, that's exactly how I answered. I was like, no, I don't think I'm going to pick nine and three if you if Kentucky and Missouri uh, losses are in there. You know, no shame in losing to Georgia right now uh, with, with the with what they're bringing to the table and the talent they have on that team. Uh, you hung with them for three and a half quarters you know a lot of fans still feel confident about the way you played against georgia and you know and we'll see where it goes from here and the the fan base is excited that's the best thing that that can happen right now with uh this florida gator fan base and 
uh, just because of uh, the you know, go back a year ago and everything that happened leading up to this day a year ago when when Dan Mullen was introduced as as Florida head coach. Uh, the excitement started when he stepped off that plane and gave a big and gave a big Gator chomp. And one year later, we're sitting here talking about a nine and three season and uh, just how fun it can be. And I just can't say again, you know, just just how important it is for for Gator Nation to to finally be having fun. Uh, and watching this team and, and going to Starkville and, and, and getting an unexpected victory and, and seeing uh, Mullen as happy as he was after that and returning home uh, to get a big win uh, against LSU where the swamp felt like the swamp of old and then finally ending the season and beating your art travel. It was a fun, successful season in Dan Mullen for year one, Will. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think um, if there's something that I learned, it's you know, people have been saying trust Mullen. And, you know, I sort of looked at it and just said, oh, to have the offense and the defense both have to improve. They have to improve significantly. And, you know, that happened. And I think that's reflected, you know, when we, when we originally did sort of our original assessment of Mullen, one of the questions was, you know, well, his record against Alabama, Auburn, LSU isn't all that great. But those are teams that were clearly more talented than his Mississippi State teams. Um, and, and I think the same thing sort of showed through this year. Now, I think the Kentucky team had an awful lot of experience, and certainly Benny Snell is a really good player. I think the Missouri team, Drew Locke, is one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC and was able to exploit some things. And, and then Georgia, obviously, is, is, is a really good team as well. You know, I, I think those aren't the teams we would have picked, but I think post, when we look at the season and how it played out, it sort of plays out the way you would expect it for a Dan Mullen season, right, where – a team where his team beat the teams they should be and maybe sprung, you know, surprised a couple they shouldn't have and then lost to the teams they should have lost to in some respects as well. So, you know, when we look at the AP top 25 at the end of the year, um, I think Missouri's going to be in it. I think Kentucky's going to be in it. I think Georgia's going to be in it. And so, um, you know, there's no shame in losing to a team that's really good like that, especially if you've also beaten Mississippi State, who's going to be in the top 25, and LSU is going to be in the top 25. And hopefully a team in the bowl game is in the top 25, in which case, you know, then you're 3-3 three and three against ranked opponents, and then you're undefeated against the guys you should have beaten. And as the talent base builds, as Mullen gets his guy at quarterback, um, as he's able to convince guys in the 2020 and 2020, 2021 recruiting class that he is building something special here in Gainesville, if you can get into those top five recruiting classes, all of a sudden, you know, the teams that they play that are going to be more talented are going to be few and far between. And Mullen has shown this year and in his tenure at Mississippi State that if he's got the more talented team, he's going to win a lot of those games. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Uh, and a couple more things before we wrap up this episode. We'll revisit our over-unders that we hit on in the preseason and uh, what that we hit in the bye week when we gave an update of those. So it'd be fun to take a look back at the, uh, the over-under stats that we had uh, fun with kicking the season off. But first, Will, uh, Josh Gatorgan sent us a question on Twitter and wanted us to discuss uh, guys leaving early, which guys could leave early for the NFL draft and which ones might return. 
Uh, we know guys of note that are gone uh, just because there's no more time left. C.C. Jefferson, Martez Ivy, Tyler Jordan, Fred Johnson, Seante Lewis, Morrill Stevens, Kerry Clark. Uh, you know, there is a group of players that have decisions to make and see if they want to come back or try to look in the NFL. So, Will, I'll quickly name the players, and then we can give our thoughts. And uh, First of all, of course, I mentioned it earlier in the episode. It was about an uh, hour and a half, two hours before uh, we come on recording this episode that Chauncey Gardner-Johnson – uh, what a turnaround for him this season. Uh, he decides and announces that he's going to go pro. Uh, he will play in the bowl game for the Gators. And I tell you what, I, I was around him a lot after that FSU game. A lot, it, it did go through my mind with all the, you know, look, Chauncey Gardner is that type of guy anyway, who's going to have fun, especially when Florida beats Florida state. But, you know, as he was having a lot of that fun, it did quickly enter into my mind. I was like, you know, I wonder if this is not necessarily a signal that, you know, this, you know, he's having so much fun because this is his last, you know, Florida, Florida state game, his last chance of beating a rival. Uh, you know, it, it did cross my mind, you know, is he going, would this be the last time we see him uh, in the Gators uniform, you know, in a regular season matchup and lo and behold, it will be. So Chauncey Gardner Johnson does, declare for the NFL draft and the Gators will fi- have to find a way to replace him next year. Yeah. I mean, well, it seems like they've got quite a few DB recruits who are coming in. Um, you know, the, the crystal balls are starting to head over towards Chris Steele. So, so we may need him sooner than maybe we thought, but you know what? Congratulations to Chauncey. I mean, this is one of those things where you want the best guys who come in, guys who play hard, guys who do things the right way. You know, it, it, he was never caught up in any of the credit card stuff that was going on. Um, you know, always seemed to have a smile on his face, loved trash talking, but also was able to back it up. And, you know, last year there were some times where he struggled tackling and, and, and some different things when he put in situations that really weren't fair for him in terms of what he wanted to do. I think this year Grantham did a much better job of putting him in situations to, su- to succeed and to use his skills. And, you know, it was ne- there was never any doubt coming into this year that if Grantham used him properly, he was going to go to the NFL and, you know, I mean, somebody who's played basically been a starter for three years, uh, you know, hey, he deserves it, and good luck. Absolutely. And then the most obvious player before uh, Gardner Johnson uh, made his decision today uh, would be Jacob Polite and uh, what's going to happen with him. And more than likely, Will, he's going he's gonna to retire bombs. Uh, another, he's coming off of a big game against uh, FSU, leads the team with 11 sacks uh, there. So, uh, look, Coming into the season, we kind of thought it would be C.C. Jefferson who may end up being uh, that big-time pass rusher under Todd Grant. And lo and behold, you know, we, we, Jacob Polite was that name we've kind of heard about, the, 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 his athleticism, his size, and his speed, and finally put it together uh, this year. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me one bit in, in a couple more days if we hear Jacob Polite is we, we'll be going on to the NFL as well. No, he absolutely needs to go. <laughs> this is one of those where – you get 11 sacks in the SEC. That doesn't typically happen two years in a row. Uh, you know, you got to strike when the iron's hot. And like you said, help out his family. But uh, you know, he's been fantastic this year. Certainly, we saw some we saw some signs of that last year. I know there was a gift going around for the for the Tennessee game last year. I think it was where he caught up to John Kelly on a screen pass and and really, 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 really hustled through there. And you know, has has been an elite pass rusher this year. And it's hard to find elite pass rushers in college. It's hard to find them in the NFL. And, and so I would expect him to go, and, and, and I think he should. I mean, every projection I've seen has him late first round, early second round, and maybe even higher than that. And, you know, that's millions of dollars, and uh, <laughs> I'd do it too. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Van Jefferson uh, will come in as a, as a transfer, of course. 
probably coming into this season, uh, leaning towards he, he probably wanted to go to the NFL, led the team with uh, 31 catches this year. Uh, if, uh, if, it's all, if you're asking me right now, I say Van Jefferson comes back for the Gators next year. Yeah, I'm not sure he has the speed to put up the combine numbers that are necessary to go flying up the board. Now, I'm not definitive on that, but he's kind of put up very similar numbers for three straight years. And I think the NFL scouts are going to say, okay, well, you put up the same numbers at Old Miss. You put up the same numbers at Florida. Are you really improving? Now, if he can go out and run a 4-3, then it doesn't really matter what his stats look like. But he's not really that kind of guy. He's, he's tall, lanky, a good route runner. Very good route runner from what he showed mm-hmm. the other day. But those guys typically are, you know, fourth, fifth round pick, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, that may be where he ends up if he decides to go. But you can also foresee something where if he runs a slower 40, then he drops out and is more of an undrafted free agent where he's got to sign somewhere. So um, I think a lot of that will depend on, you know, they can go out and they can ask people for, uh, they can ask experts for grades in terms of where they'll end up. Um, you know, I think if they give him a third or fourth round grade, he probably goes. If they give him a sixth or seventh round grade, he probably comes back. I, I kind of lean towards him coming back, um, if for no other reason, because he and Franks and, and within the offense really started to click maybe the last two or three games of the year. And if he can click the whole way through 2019, um, I think they'll probably end up shooting up draft boards. Absolutely, and then uh, the player that turned heads this season probably more than anybody, uh, offensive lineman Jawan Taylor, kind of the, the unexpected uh, turning of heads here and uh, has been projected as a high offensive lineman uh, draft pick here. Would be helpful if he came back for, for this Gator offensive lines. You know, as I mentioned, they lose Ivy, Jordan, and Johnson uh, on that offensive line already, but Jawan Taylor has really turned some heads. Uh, he probably more than likely he'll be uh, uh, declaring for the NFL draft sometime here soon. Yeah, he's, he's really got a special skill set in terms of being able to step in from when he was a freshman and basically anchor that, that spot for three straight years. Um, the issue he has is this year Martez Ivy stayed, and so he didn't really get to show his ability to play left tackle, which is where the NFL values you. So this, again, comes down to a if he comes back next year, plays left tackle, he's probably a first-round draft pick. Um, if he goes as a right tackle, I doubt he's that high. So really, it's a question of of cost reward at that point. You know, if he thinks he can get to a second contract in the NFL, it's probably worth going. Uh, But I do think there's value in Taylor coming back, playing left tackle and and showing that he can do that for the NFL scouts. Uh, Linebacker David Reese, not really projected to be a high pick. So I say he probably comes back, uh, but he's uh, one name to keep an eye on there to see what happens. But uh, I can see him, you know, size uh, not really conducive to, to, to a big time uh, middle linebacker in the NFL. So I think David Reese probably comes back here. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think um, he's shown some limitations, particularly in pass coverage, and that's something where um, he'll get isolated, which means he's a situational linebacker in the NFL, at least right now. Um, so I, th- I think coming back probably enhances his draft stock. So, you know, again, if if that is who he is and he's mm-hmm. a situational linebacker, maybe it makes sense to go, get drafted in the fifth or sixth round, become that situational linebacker, and not put your body on the line for another year while uh, while not getting paid for it. So, um, you know, I think the ceiling is is probably relatively low, but I think the floor is pretty high, um, which is always one of the nice things about having Reese out there is you got Joseph freelancing a lot. <laughs> and then you've got Reese really sort of being the steadying influence and having those guys side by side has, has been a good combination. So um, I would expect him to come back. I think he clearly, you know, the leadership he showed last year when everything was going poor, um, I think really speaks well to him and also how much he cares about Florida. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see him back. 
For Sean Joseph, you just mentioned him. Will, we know he can move all over the field with his speed and athleticism, but he's got to show to scouts he can learn to play disciplined football. You know, he needs to return, he needs to return and show improvement in assignment football before Vashawn Joseph is ready to go to the NFL. See, I think he's probably going to go. I, I think if, if, if I were advising him, I would probably advise him to go if for no other reason, because if you come back and don't show that sort of discipline, it really tanks your draft stock. If you go now, people say, oh, okay, he's a physical you know, he's got the speed, he's got the size, he's got the ability to hit. We'll teach him what he needs to know. But if you've got two years in a defense with a competent defensive coordinator who's building things around you and you're still having those sorts of issues, that would be a red flag to me as an NFL general manager. So I, I think somebody will take a shot at him just for a, a, a chance on him just because of his physical skills. And so I'll, I'll be interested to see what his decision is, but I would probably lean for just the all right, I'm taking a look at the two running backs here. Jordan Scarlett, you know, not really much more he can do. Uh, Will, you know, uh, Florida's going to split carries. You know, him and P. Ryan, very similar numbers this year uh, when you when it was all said and done. So with Scarlett, you know, as long as he's been here, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him uh, be declared, de- declaring to go to the NFL soon. Yeah, I'll be honest. I think both of them probably would go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, you split carries with each other, so you don't have a whole lot of – whole lot of miles on the tires um i don't know you know if, if if either one of them comes back and puts up like an 1800 yard season next year then maybe you improve your draft stock but it's not like running backs really get drafted all that high anyway unless you're really special and neither one of these guys jumps out like a sony michelle or a nick chubb they're very very good running backs but they're not those guys and so if you come back and you get dinged and you don't and you're not quite as effective then your draft stock drops um, both guys have had very, very good statistical seasons. Uh, you know, they're both juniors. I, I don't really know. Um, I don't know what either one of them has to prove by coming back unless they just love the university but and, and want to sort of really see this through. But, you know, running backs, shelf life's really, really short. Scarlett in particular already missed a year. So he's a year older than he would be normally entering the NFL. Um, so, I, you know, again, I, I think from a running back perspective, um, just because of the length of careers and because they both had really good seasons, those are guys I can see probably both going. Yeah, of course. Hey, the, the P. Ryan. Yeah, I'm not sure either. You know how how much. Uh, you know, even if he, like you said, even if he does come back and get more carries, what has he really proven? Just being, he's already shown what he can do and, and the ability that he has. So, uh, you know, just by putting more numbers up or getting more carries, I don't know how much more he shows. Unless he just wants to be more of the guy. Uh, when, it, when it's all said, I think if he does come back, he would be more of the guy. I don't know if the if the carries would be split as much as they were with Scarlett and P. Ryan, as much as they would be with P. Ryan and Pierce. Uh, as much as I like Pierce, I do think that this coaching staff really likes P. Ryan uh, a whole lot here. And the last one, Jabari Zuniga. I'm going to say it really benefits him to stay to see if he can elevate his game much like Polite did this season. You know, he can show if he can show that type of play, then he improves his stock uh, a ton next season. Yeah, he's the one who's really the question mark to me. I mean, out of all the guys who are sort of sitting there at that tweener status, I mean, his his statistics are pretty good, but he was nowhere near as consistent as Polite was throughout the entire year. And so, um, you know, like you said, if you move him to the other side, if you uh, if you make him the featured pass rusher, um, you know, you you bring in um, you bring in a guy to the other side where now you can start double teaming him and you sort of show what he can do against those sorts of those sorts of fronts, well, you know, hey, 
you can really, really raise your draft stock. So um, I expect Zuniga to come back. So, um, you know, he and Polite were sort of a package deal in terms of their abilities. And you do wonder if Polite leaves, does that impact Zuniga and sort of hurt his ability to put up put up numbers next year? Certainly something he'll have to consider. And I think a lot of it comes down to um, his physical skills. Because, again, in the NFL, they're not necessarily looking at production. They're looking at your physical skills. So if you look at Zuniga and say, hey, that guy could be a, a solid NFL pass rusher, or, he, or if you look at him and say he could be an elite NFL pass rusher, you draft him regardless of whether he had six and a half sacks or 12 sacks. So um, he, he's one where I think uh, Florida's defensive line can really benefit by having him back. Um, and, and I think he can really benefit by coming back. Um, the question just becomes sort of, at that point, it's a personal thing because he'll get drafted. It's just a question of where and, and what that means from a financial perspective. All right, let's take a look at these over and unders here before we go, Will. And uh, the first one uh, we actually had uh, nailed um, when uh, we were going with it back the, when we looked at it uh, during the bye week here, and it was if uh, over or under if Felipe Frank starts seven and a half games. Uh, he did that uh, when you know midway through the season and started every game of the season. He beat that seven and a half. Uh, of course, you know, first time since 2009, the same quarterback has started every game. You can also say 2010, but Trey Burton did start the FSU game in the Wildcat that year. Uh, John Brantley was the starting quarterback, but you know, Felipe Franks ends up starting every game of the season. Will, yeah, I mean, and like I said, played very, very well for what we would have expected him to do. So, uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it's an important thing to have continuity on the offensive line. It's an important thing to have continuity at quarterback. And yeah, there were some moments where we wondered when is Trask going to come in and when is he going to start. And maybe he does start if uh, you know if, if he doesn't get hurt in practice. But um, you know, he did get hurt, and so Franks is able to pick up the pieces and really and really drive forward from that uh, from that Missouri game. And and you know, hey, I I I'm thrilled that Florida had a guy who started the entire year because. Um, coming into the year, we would not have been surprised if someone was getting pulled week three, week four. Um, and that definitely didn't happen. So kudos to him and kudos to Mullen for picking a guy who uh, who was good enough to carry the torch the entire season. All right. Next one was over under 1,000 yards for Jordan Scarlett. He finished with 717 yards. Uh, I put the over on that one just because I thought Florida would run the ball a little bit more. I thought they would have a featured back a little bit more. Uh, when they all said and done, split the carries pretty, uh, like I mentioned earlier, with P. Ryan a good bit, and Florida passed the ball a little more uh, with Felipe Franks than I thought they would. So it was definitely under 1,000 yards for Jordan Scarlett as he finished with 717. Yeah, he only had 122 carries, but he did average 5.9 yards per rush, which I think is actually more impressive than had he gone for a thousand, right? I look at that and say he was way more efficient. So for his career coming in, he averaged five yards of rush. So the average 5.9 yards of rush, and he had 10 receptions, um, which I, the one I'm remembering in particular was the reception he had sort of down the center of the field. Hmm. Um, I want to say it was against Colorado State, but you know that was almost like a post route coming out of the, uh, coming out of the backfield. Uh, that wasn't something I thought he could do, and he really improved in pass protection. And, and that was critical to Florida in the game the other day. I mean, he and P. Ryan stoned those seven-man fronts when when Franks needed time. And and that, I think, is, is where, you know, when you talk about the NFL and guys like Scarlett and P. Ryan, the fact that they can block is going to be something that, that everybody looks at. So, you know, he might not have gotten to 1,000 yards, but I think this was a very, very impressive 
717-yard season. Absolutely. And the next stat was 50 catches for Van Jefferson over under there. He had 31 on the season, Will. And you can go back and look at it as uh, Felipe Franks just spread the ball around a good bit. Uh, uh, Hammond had 26 catches. Grimes had 25 catches. Tony had 24 catches. Cleveland, 18. Swain, 14. Much like the, the Scarlet P. Ryan and sometimes Pierce, you know, um, uh, you know, triple threat uh, at the running back, you had all these receiver catching passes as well. And we talked throughout the season where you, know, you can't really key on this, you know, one person in this Florida offense as, as the key, key playmaker because they spread the ball out in the run game and looking at these, uh, these stats in the passing game as well. You know, Van Jefferson didn't get the 50 catches. As I mentioned, only had 31. A part of it was just cause uh, Florida and, and Felipe Franks in this passing game, just really spread the ball around. Yeah, and not just the wide receivers, the tight ends. So yeah. Will Stevens caught eight, Siante Lewis caught eight, Kamari Gamble caught seven, Lucas Kroll caught six, Kyle Pitts caught three. So, you know, you start adding that up, you're at 16, 23, 29, 32 catches by the tight ends. And those are throws that would have gone in Jefferson's direction last year because they weren't going to the tight ends at all. So, you know, I think we took the over in this one, or at least I did, because the scuttle coming into the season was that Jefferson had been the best player in camp by far. And so you sort of figured they were going to target him early and target him often. And like you said, I mean, Mullen just really emphasized getting the ball to everyone and really getting everyone exposure in the offense, sometimes in a way that frustrated me because I wanted to just throw it to Tony 55 times a game. But, uh, you know, I, I do think, again, I think over the season that turned out to be the right approach because, uh, you know, once you got to the end of the year, guys like Grimes were able to integrate themselves within the offense rather than it just being the Van Jefferson show. Yeah, you know, he was almost, he was 19 short of that. Uh, and the reason we put the number at 50 was because one year uh, at Ole Miss he had 49, and the other year he had 42. And like you said, we heard so much uh, in spring and, and fall camp of how Van Jefferson was the best receiver on the field. So 50 was a good number to put it at. But as we said, they spread the ball out uh, a good bit. And, uh, and him falling short of that, I don't think really is so much of an indictment uh, when it when it's all said and done here. Uh, overall, Will, the offense, over under 30 points a game. And, and we are using all, uh, all 12 games here uh, when it's all said and done. So it does count Idaho and Charleston Southern. And the Gators ended with 34.5 points per game. So uh, you beat the over uh, on 30 points a game by four and a half points there, Will. Uh, so, of course, that was probably one of the big improvements that we were looking for when this offense and at the end of the season, 34 and a half points per game is a huge improvement. Yeah, well, so I had modest improvement for Franks through the air, and then I thought there was going to be fairly significant rushing from Tony and Emory Jones as sort of a, an option quarterback. And that certainly didn't materialize, but Franks was able to almost put up the same yardage that I would have thought that Tony and Jones might have put up albeit more carries, but then also to significantly improve the year. And you combine that with the fact that both P. Ryan and Scarlett had career years, and, and it shouldn't be a surprise they got up over 20, or up over 30 points a game. You know, the interesting thing is I think um, with the Florida State game, they got up over 40 points. I think that was the fifth game this year. They went over 40 points. I think McElwain only hit that mark four times in his entire three years he was here. So, you know, we can talk about Idaho. We can talk about Charleston Southern. Yeah, those are cupcakes, and they sort of skew that average. But coming in, we know that we knew those guys were on the schedule, and I think we were both thinking that, like, 35 would be a good score against those teams, and Mullen was putting up 60. So, um, 
you know, he understood when he came in, he even said it when he came in that, uh, that, you know, he expected that he knew that Florida fans wanted points and, and he certainly delivered on that. The next one was going to go to the defense and over under 21 points per game will, and uh, they barely did it Ended the season, giving up 20.4 points per game uh, going back to last year. Uh, they gave up 27.3 points per game, so almost a touchdown improvement for this Gators defense compared to last year. Yeah, I had them at 23 points per game, so I had them over, but still a significant improvement. Um, they improved more than I thought, so you know the offense improved more than I thought they would, and more that the offense improved more than offenses historically improved. I think the defense did the same thing, and so the combination of both of those things, I think, is a reflection of, on this staff, I think it's also a bit of an indictment on the previous staff, um, but but certainly both sides were able to improve, and, and um, you know both the offense being better than I expected and the defense being better than I expected is why we end up with a nine and three season rather than a seven and five one. Yeah, and I think you know the, the schedule helped. I think as well. You know, they're not dominant offenses out there uh, that the skater defense played, and also, uh, you know, so I, I did take the under uh, on that one, and I think probably right around that number as well, because it would be hard to get there's too too far underneath that um, uh, there. So, and part of the reason the defense was able to to hit that twenty point four points per game mark was. Sacks will, and we hit we set the over under at 29 and a half there. And the Gators ended with 32 sacks on the season. Jakai Polite with 11, Zuniga with six and a half. Hassan Joseph had four, uh, there will. So, you know, it all kind of goes back to uh, Jakai Polite once again, as we mentioned him earlier, uh, of why this uh, Gators defense and this Gators defensive front was able uh, to, to end the season with 32 sacks. Yeah, well, they, they got to your number in that Florida State game. <laughs> there, <man. laughs> I, I was sweating it, Will. I was sweating it. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so I, I think it, the same thing that we said about the about the offense and about Frank's play in terms of sometimes it being pretty good, sometimes it being really bad and really just sort of being inconsistent was the same thing we saw with the defense in spurts. So sometimes it was a little bit inconsistent, and, and we did see that in terms of pass rush, and we saw it in terms of pass defense. But – at the end of the day, they had two guys who could get to the quarterback um, almost at will when the, when the offensive line was not playing very well against them. And, and you know when you get when you get seventeen and a half sacks from your two defensive ends, uh, you know you're you're going to be uh, you're going to be pretty successful getting to the quarterback. And they were able to do that. Well, that gummit, these twelve games are done, and I, I'm I'm depressed. <laughs> like now we do, I mean, obviously we got the SEC championship game coming up this week and, and, and all sort of the championship games. And, um, you know, I, I feel terrible for, for UCF and Mackenzie Milton being injured. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I really wanted them to have to eat crow after losing with Milton as the quarterback. Um, you know, cause I mean, I, I think UCF's a very good team. I mm-hmm. think Milton makes them an excellent team. I think Milton takes the engine that makes that run. So, um, you know, certainly we've got that coming up this week too with them playing Memphis. We'll see how they do. So, still college football on the docket, but it's not the Gators. And and you know, you you only get twelve of these or thirteen of these a year. Um, you know, hopefully fifteen of them in a couple of years when when Mullen's got this stuff really humming. But you only get a few of them, and and this is the best time of year. And really, uh, being able to spend it with our Twitter friends and the people who support the podcast and going back and forth about what we think, even if we disagree. Um, is, is a great time and it's 
it's it's it, like you said, it was fun this year, and that's always that's something that's been missing um, the last couple of years, both from the offensive perspective, but especially last year, just from sort of the energy within the program and all that sort of stuff. And and Mullen, if nothing else, has brought that back, and and it's been a blast this year. Well, I didn't uh, I didn't uh, prep you for this question, and I'll answer it as well too. Do you have a favorite moment from the season? Uh, favorite moment. Well, I mean, Chauncey with the with the Seminole head is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now, my favorite moment is the is the Canarius Tony touchdown against Mississippi State. Yeah. Um, because I'm such a Tony truther that when he threw the <laughs> when he threw the ball, I completed it. All of a sudden, everybody who's been listening to me for the last year or two stump for him was was immediately tweeting at me <laughs> about it. So. You know, I mean, again, one of the things about sports is it's so communal. When you put yourself out there and have an opinion that nobody agrees with, um, you know, it, it's it's always it's always interesting to see the response. So um, that was one that really stuck out to me was, you know, hey, they finally called it. They utilized his throwing ability. And then for, to have him put it there on a dime was just really cool. Uh, mine was uh, getting called a couch tweeter. Oh, my bad. Never mind. No, not, <laughs> not, 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 not that one. Uh, now, nah, mine was, uh, you know, being in that stadium with my dad, that, that LSU game, uh, you know, feeling like the swamp of old, uh, and then the pick six to, to kind of, you know, put the game away. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that, yeah, like I said, that, that the swamp feeling like it, it, it did. Uh, my dad being there too. So, you know, for the, the a gator moment and a personal moment all intertwining uh, at, at one time, that was probably uh, my favorite point in the season. It was that, that big LSU win and, and walking out of that stadium and, you know, saying, you know, it, and I wasn't to the point, you know, I've watched football for too long now to, you know, it, it wasn't Florida's back, but it was, we're on the right track. And, uh, you know, still had that feeling throughout the whole season, and uh, you know, going back and looking at it, the all, all twelve games, uh, st- still that LSU game uh, when it's all said and done uh, was the one. But uh, th- th- this last week with Tallahassee being on that field, uh, right after that and being amongst the players, that that's a very, very, very close second. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess when you th- when you throw in the familial component, I mean, I went to the Tennessee game with my brother, and you, yeah. you know, you sort of walked into that game, and you didn't really know what to expect. I mean. You know, you had a new coach at Florida, first game on the road. You got the new coach at Tennessee, really sort of. I mean, that stadium was absolutely packed when the game started, and then Florida immediately shut them up with all the turnovers, and, and it was a blast. I mean, the only reason, like, there wasn't a signature moment in that game, um, though maybe you know the the throw to Swain, where he yeah. sort of juked the guy and went down the sideline and dove, and he was diving right at us when he dove into the end zone. That's probably the signature moment I'll remember from that game because that was the one where we looked at it and said holy crap, like we're capable of making a 50-yard play through the air. Like this team is going to be a whole lot better if we can do that. So, um, you know, I, I think – and plus, again, being able to share it with my brother and my brother-in-law. Uh, really, my highlight of that trip was just the like 18 hours in the car I had with my brother. I mean, it was a blast. We haven't been able to do that in a really long time. So, um, you know, that's one of the things I think about football in general. It sort of brings together those sorts of things. I mean, you know – you and I are friends because of Florida football. Um, you know, we happen to sit here and pontificate about it, but, you know, we're sitting here texting each other behind the scenes and wondering why they ran some formation or why they won't run the ball more or, or why they're not getting it to a playmaker. And that's something that, you know, you have with your buddies when you're in college. And I think as you get a little bit older, that drifts away. And yeah. um, you know, we, we sort of reestablish that through the podcast with all the people we interact with. So, um, you know, this season for me, I think, a lot of the things I'm just going to remember are sort of the interaction with some of the folks and, and really the generosity of people who have reached out and, and told us they appreciate what we do and, and 
appreciate the time we put into it, and especially with the couch tweeting nonsense, like you mentioned, uh, you know, the support and really sort of the just the familial aspect of the fan base and this podcast have been a really cool thing for me to experience this year. Because last year I was just sort of on for the previews. This year I've been much more involved, and and it's been fun to do that. Yeah, we even got to do some. Uh... Uh, not, not many people know, but uh, if you go to a, a harmonic woods tailgate, uh, got got to do a thunder. So, uh, <laughs> hey yeah. man, that, that that was a blast too. Well, well, I am definitely hitting that place up every time I go to a game from here on out. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, what you got coming up on Reading Reaction later this week? Yeah, so I'm going to have a little bit of a season summary. I mean, we talked about a lot of the things this year, but one of the things I do want to go back is look at 2017. Where were we? 2018. Where are we now? Um, there's probably going to be some non-Florida stuff that pops up from time to time just because, um, you know, I am interested in the SEC championship game. I am interested in in, uh, in various things that are going on. And, and I'm probably going to have some pretty extensive bowl previews. A lot of that depends on what's going on in my real life. But I'd like to have some previews of bowl games. And, and if people are interested, certainly would like to hear from them if they, if they want to see that sort of stuff. Definitely more SEC-focused and definitively more Power 5-focused. But, uh, you know, I think I think the yards above replacement stuff I've been tracking and I've been doing some recent things for the SEC for the entire year. And it has some unique predictive abilities now that we've got 12 games under our belt. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how that's going to translate into the bowl season. And, uh, and certainly we'll be sharing that with people as we move on. Quick pick, Will. Alabama, Georgia, who you got? Uh, I, I think it's going to be Alabama. I think Georgia might give them a, a fight for a halftime and, and maybe – through a little bit halfway through the third quarter, I think Alabama is just still too much and eventually just pulls away. Oh, I think Alabama converts a second and 23. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with a backup quarterback? <laughs> uh, that'd be better, bringing Hurts and have second and 23 in overtime. But no, nah, yeah. I, I think you know, the, the, the story of college football this year in many respects is that. Saban has taken his elite recruiting and his elite defense, and he's now got an elite quarterback, you know, leading that group. And and the question is, is is Tua as a sophomore going to be able to get the job done? I mean, obviously in the national championship game he got it done last year, but you know, can he get it done against elite talent now? Especially since he's had sort of a knee injury that's been bugging him recently. But I, I think we're we all suspect he's going to be able to, but we'll get to see that. I, I think against Georgia, we saw that the defense can be exploited, even against Florida. And Alabama's offense is a lot different than going against Florida's offense, even with all the progress that Mullen's made. So, yeah, I, I think I probably have Alabama maybe by three touchdowns. Uh, you know, maybe Georgia makes it a game and, and gets it within a, within seven. But I, I, I would be much more apt to take Alabama big than I would Georgia. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully a year from now we're talking about uh, Florida in this episode in the SEC championship game. Hey man, I'm here for it. That'll be that'll be a blast. And, you know, if, if Mullen gets in there in year two, that's a really really good sign. So, absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, anything else, man? Nah, man. Again, just thank you to everybody who's been with us this season, the last couple of seasons, and uh, and thanks to you for having me on. I really appreciate the forum and appreciate being able to being able to spout my opinions. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, but I appreciate the forum and then you having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. Wouldn't have it any other way. So that's Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at Will Miles, SEC, and his site once again, readandreaction.com. I'm your host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode 
of Gators Breakdown. 